Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. We'll be looking at verse 3 through 10 this morning. One of the reasons why I had the passage that we just read read is because it deals with the jealousy of God. It deals with His zeal. In fact, that's why I had the unison reading read as well. And I know that we're not used to thinking about the idea of God's zeal, although by this point you might realize that I'm very comfortable speaking about God's zeal and jealousy, but we do need to think about this whole idea once more this morning before we begin. When we think of God's jealousy, we think of His... Well, in the Old Testament, we think of, his jealous, we think of God's jealousy being expressed on the one hand in His wrath against His enemies. In many places in the Old Testament, the Scriptures speak of God as being jealous in wrath and in fury and in anger against His enemies. But the Bible also speaks to us about God's jealous love for His people. And when we think of God's jealous love for His people, we think of the ardency of God's love. We think of the intensity of His grace and His purposes and His mercies in the life of His people. We think of God's devotion to His people's purity and God's devotion to His people's peace and His devotion to their preservation. And brothers, that's a wonderful thought as we think about that. God, Our God is a jealous God. He's a God who loves us if we're in Christ Jesus. God loves us. He protects us. He cares for us. He watches over us. And He does so with zeal. He does so with ardency. He does so with devotion. And we see that beautifully illustrated for us in Isaiah 42, and we had it illustrated for us in Zechariah chapter 8. And we're coming to another passage today where we see something of God's ardency. Now, the word jealousy or ardency or zeal we're not going to find in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3 through 10, but the whole concept is sitting behind this text. It's the spirit in which this text is spoken. And so I wanted you to be thinking about these things. We're going to continue our series then this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2. We've been in a series in 2 Peter. We've been speaking about Christian growth or growth in the Christian life from 2 Peter. Peter commands us in 2 Peter to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're in this middle, we're in the middle of this chapter, chapter 2 of 2 Peter, that deals with a warning to us, vital to our Christian growth, Peter is saying is that we be aware of the fact that there will be false teachers in our midst. There will be wolves, fierce wolves. There are dangers in the Christian life, and we must be aware of them. And we talked about the nature of these false teachers and the nature of that danger and the care that we are to have towards them last week. But this week, Peter's going to turn the page, and he's going to begin to comfort us, and he's going to speak to us about the destruction of these false teachers, the destruction of these false brothers that are in our midst, and God's preserving care and love and protection over us. And we could just sum up the whole sermon like this, swift destruction to the ungodly, swift deliverance to those who trust in Jesus Christ. And so it's an amazing passage that we have before us, and I hope that it will be very encouraging to you, very edifying to you. I hope that it will strengthen your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our God is a jealous God. And this message, on one hand, startles us, and it is very encouraging to us. And we need to think about both of those. It startles us a little bit to think about how, zeal, uh, how much zeal and intensity our God has towards us. It awakens us. I hope that it alerts us. It helps us to look at our Father and our Savior and to look at ourselves and to see how easily we are uh, drawn away into spiritual apathy and spiritual laziness, on one hand. 
and yet we have a God who cares for us. When we are apathetic, He is not. He's at work. When we're lazy, He is not idle. When we are cold in our hearts, He is hot in His devotion towards us. And all of that, it confronts us, but it also comforts and encourages, encourages us. So let's take a look at the passage. Second Peter chapter 2. I'm going to start with verse 1. I'm going to read through these verses. Verse 1 all the way down to part of verse 10. And before I read them, let me say one more thing about the structure of Second Peter chapter 2. It'll be helpful to note this. The interesting thing that we see happening in Second Peter chapter 2 is that Peter is on fire. <laughs> he is really hot. He, does, he starts out a little slow, but he starts speeding up, and we're getting into that place where he's really driving home his points. He can hardly keep up with himself. But his structure is very simple here. He lays down a propositional statement. He says, look, God is not idle or asleep when it comes to the destruction of the wicked. And God has never been idle or asleep when it comes to the destruction of the wicked. And then he's going to give us three examples from the Old Testament that illustrate the idea that God is not idle or asleep in the destruction of the wicked. But as he does so, he gets ahead of himself a little bit. He starts talking about false teachers and the destruction that's going to come upon them. And then he expands to all of the ungodly. Because false teachers are just sinners like the rest of us are. And there's a destruction that's coming not just upon the false teachers, but upon all of the ungodly. And as Peter's developing this thought, Again, he's getting ahead of himself. He starts to bring in the godly. He starts to bring in Noah and Lot and examples of the way that God preserves his people and keeps his people from the temptation of the wicked. And he does so even in the face of their weakness and of their sin and of their laziness. And he's making this whole point that our God is a God who is on fire, jealous and zealous for the destruction of the ungodly, for the sake of the people that he loves, for the protection and care of his precious people. And again, I hope it's very strengthening to us. So after having said all of that, let's finally get to the passage. Second Peter chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 1 just so you can see the build up here. It's helpful to see it. So here's where he begins. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. There's the warning. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to all the ungodly, and if He rescued righteous Lot, greatly destroyed stressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And he just keeps going from there. We'll look at those things next week. But we see there from the middle of verse 3 to the, about the middle of verse 10, Peter is making this point about the swift destruction of false teachers. Their condemnation from long ago 
is not idle. It is not asleep. And so our outline this morning is very simple. In verse 3, Peter lays down his basic proposition, his basic claim. False teachers will be destroyed swiftly and severely. In verse 4 through 8, he gives us three examples of this, which we will chew on. And then in verse 9, he drives home the theological principle that God knows how to care for his people and he knows how to destroy the wicked. Very helpful for us as we think about these things this morning. So number one in verse 3, Peter makes his claim. Very simple claim. False teachers will be destroyed swiftly and severely. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Now, when Peter uses this term from long ago, what he means is it's always been like this. There's never been a time when God hasn't swiftly answered the ungodly. God has always been at work. God has always been awake and alert to the sins of the ungodly. And to bring it back upon their heads in final judgment and condemnation, God has been swift. The condemnation and the judgment of God, the protection of God over His people, has been at work. It's not idle is the way that Peter speaks here. It's not asleep. It's not idle. It's at work. It's not slack. It isn't distracted. It doesn't drag its feet. It's working. It's not asleep. God is aware. He has His eyes open. He sees. He knows. He knows the hearts and the thoughts and the intentions of every man, woman, and child. And the punishment for our sins is at work. It is already at work. And the punishment for our sins, the judge who will issue out that punishment, is well aware of the sins that must be punished. We could illustrate this idea that Peter is communicating here with the illustration of a husband who is jealous over his wife. If you just think for a moment of a husband who sees his wife being flirted with by a predator, by a creep, by a man who doesn't know his boundaries. Well, men of this congregation, you know what your response is going to be. You're going to immediately become jealous for your wife. You're going to become protective of her. You're going to begin to act swiftly, right? What is your response to a man flirting with your wife? It's the opposite of idle. (laughs) It's the opposite of asleep. You see, you know, and you are in motion to intercept this whole situation. That's the idea that's getting across to us. God's condemnation upon the wicked, upon these false teachers who would exploit you and all of these menacing evils that they threaten you with. God sees. He knows. He's on His way (laughs) to protect His bride. That's the picture that Peter's painting for us here. It's at work. <laughs> maybe we could take a different illustration. Maybe you don't like the illustration of a husband and wife. Maybe you take the illustration of a mother and her daughter in the dark alleyway. And I've used this illustration before, but you can think maybe of a, of a mother caring for her little daughter and being very protective. And they're in a dangerous situation. And there's a predator. There's a thief. There's a robber. There's a kidnapper. He's coming his way to harm that little girl and to harm the mother. Well, you know what happens in that kind of a situation, don't you? The mother wakes. She's not asleep. She sees the threat. She sees it coming. She's not idle. She's got her little daughter in one arm and she has her protection in the other.
There's a swiftness here. There's an immediacy that is being communicated here. God is at work. Maybe we could use another example. The Bible uses the example of wolves in the midst of God's sheep as an example of the false teachers and the ungodly in the midst of his people. And they threaten God's flock. Well, then the picture would be something like this. You have all of these fierce wolves surrounding the sheep of God, but there's a fiercer wolf behind them, a fiercer predator. Maybe we could put it like this. There's a fiercer shepherd who sees those wolves, and the staff is already in motion to drive those wolves away. God's punishment upon the ungodly is not idle. It is not asleep. God is not asleep. God is not idle. He's at work to protect His people and to bring swift destruction upon those who would threaten their purity and their peace. It's a startling message, isn't it? It's an alarming message. It's a good message if we receive it by faith. We praise the Lord, our God. Sometimes it seems to us, however, that God is asleep. Isn't this why Peter has to exhort us like this? Isn't this what moves him in this passage? Sometimes it looks like God is idle. Sometimes it looks like God is shuffling His feet. Sometimes it looks like God is just simply letting sinners get away with their sins. It looks like He's moving slowly. And Peter here is assuring us that is not the case. In fact, this becomes one of the themes he picks up again in 2 Peter chapter 3, where he tells us that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. But God sees, He knows, and He's bringing the condemnation of the wicked. He's already at work to make it happen. Well, in verse 4 through 8, moving on, Peter gives us three examples from the Old Testament that illustrate for us and prove to us that God is swift and not idle and not asleep when it comes to the destruction of the ungodly. He's going to give us three examples. In verse 4, he gives us the example of the fallen angels. In verse 5 through 6, he gives us the example of the ancient world. And in verse 6 through 8, he gives us the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 4, the fallen angels... Look at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And he just stops there. He's going to move on to a different example. It sounds like a sentence fragment. As I said to you, Peter's moving very quickly through this passage. He's getting ahead of himself in some ways. But here he goes. God did not spare the angels when they sinned. I believe very strongly and very firmly that Peter is dealing here with the fallen angels. Uh, But I have to disclose to you, brothers and sisters, not all godly men agree with that perspective. There's debate about how to interpret this passage. And I know it's a little bit of a sidetrack in our sermon, but it's important that I cover it with you uh, just so that you're aware uh, of the fact that I'm I'm presenting to you uh, something that I can't be dogmatic about, which is a little... Uh, frustrating to me, but I I have to do it. There are godly men who have a disagreement about this. So what is Peter talking about when he talks about the fallen angels here? Are the angels who sinned? He doesn't use the word fallen angels. I've used that word. That's my opinion about this passage. There's a debate about this, and just to be very brief about it, there's 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 an understanding that the angels who sinned might be the sons of God who are mentioned in Genesis chapter 6. If you'll remember Genesis chapter 6, the whole narrative there 
about how the wickedness of man was great on the earth and the Lord was ready to destroy the earth, it tells us that the sons of God in those days went into the daughters of men. And there's a perspective uh, that there are these angels who have slept with women, and that's the reason why God judged the world, and that what Peter is referring to is Genesis chapter 6, and the sons of God going in to the daughters of men. Very vivid picture, but nevertheless, this is the opinion that some have, and then of course God dealt with that very quickly. I believe that this opinion is false. I, don't, I, I believe that it's a bad idea uh, to interpret the passage that way. I don't think that's what the passage is saying. I don't think that's what Genesis chapter 6 teaches. But as I've said to you, I can't be dogmatic about that. Many godly men have taken that position, although many godly men have opposed that position. Well, I oppose that position. I think that what Peter is talking about here is clearly the fallen angels. He's talking about the fall of Satan and the demons and the angels who went with Satan when he fell. Now, let me say this very quickly. There's many people who think that the Bible does not teach the fall of the angels or the fall of Satan. It's something that we have to assume. And, I, and there, again, there's many godly men who believe this, who think this. They think that the Bible is silent on this issue, and it's simply clear to us because of the way that the Scriptures are structured and the way that they speak about the demons. We must assume that they were once made good and then they fell. But I am convinced that the Scriptures do speak of the fall of the angels, and I'm going to give you a couple of examples of this. Again, I can't be dogmatic, so you're free to disagree with me, uh, but I'd like you to follow me with this really quickly. If you, if, you don't have to turn there, but Luke chapter 10, verse 18 Jesus makes a very interesting statement there. He says to his disciples, when they've been casting out the demons and so on, and they're rejoicing that they have this power that Christ has given to them, he says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Now, I think that this is a claim on Christ's part, that he's the pre-incarnate Son of God, and he was there from the foundation of the world, and he, as the Son of God, before, the, before he became incarnate, before he took upon himself human flesh, as the Son of God, witnessed the fall of Satan and the fall of the demons, the fallen and sinful angels. And I think that's what he's telling his disciples. He says, I was there, I saw it. So don't rejoice that you have the power to do this. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. That's the context there in Luke chapter 10. But Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Now, there are again many people who think that the Bible doesn't speak about the fall of the angels. If you go to the Old Testament, that you can't find it. And I'm of a different opinion. And again, I can't be dogmatic about this. And the only reason I'm bringing it up to you is because it's going to help illustrate the point that I'm making to you. But if you'll turn with me really quickly to Genesis chapter 3, I'll share with you my opinion about this. Lots of theologians and godly men who would disagree with me. I have to be clear about that. A bold and clear declaration of truth. But I'm convinced. The question I ask is, why, why, why do the, the, the assumption that's made is that Genesis doesn't record for us a fall of Satan or, or any demons. And so we have to assume that it took place between creation and, and the fall of man because there Satan is tempting man. But then the question that I raise is, well, why can't Satan's fall be in the very act of tempting man? Just like man's fall is in the very act of eating the fr fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Are you with me on that? It's one in the same deed. It's one in the same record. In the fall of man, you see the fall of Satan. Just like we see Eve being tempted and lured, and then she eats the apple, we see Satan tempting 
and in the act of his own fall. I'm very convinced of that. You don't have to agree with me, but I think that that's what's happening. And so we get to Genesis chapter 3, and you remember the whole story. Adam and Eve, they are tempted. Adam, Eve eats the fruit. She gives it to her husband. The husband eats the fruit that God has said not to eat. And then God comes on the scene because he has seen all of this. And he comes to Adam and he says, Adam, why did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And he says, because the woman that you gave me. And he says to Eve, why did you eat of it? And she says, because the serpent deceived me. And then God doesn't even think to question Satan. He comes right out of the gate here and he speaks these words that we read in verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, because you have done this, cursed are you that there is the fall. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. Now notice how God speaks to Satan in this context. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. There it is, brothers and sisters, a casting down of Satan into the very dust of the earth. And of course, in chapter 15, verse 15, God promises that the Satan will have his head crushed by the seed of the woman. It's a promise and a curse of total destruction. He has cast down Satan. He has cast him down like lightning. It's a picture, it's a very vivid picture of God taking the serpent and throwing him down into the dust of the earth and promising his total and final and ultimate defeat. Well, you don't have to agree with me on that perspective, but it's very helpful for us if we think about that this is what Peter is saying in this context. We already have an example that God has dealt with the fallen angels swiftly. He wasn't idle. That's what I want you to see there. It was almost immediate. God did not wait. He was not asleep. He saw. The man and the woman hid themselves, and God judged them very quickly. And he, and, he, and he judged them severely, but primarily the serpent. And so notice here the language of the text is it wasn't just swift, but it was very severe. Look at verse 4 again, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. The word for hell there is the word, it's a Greek word, it's the word for Tartarus. I don't know if you've ever heard the word Tartarus before. Tartarus is a word that comes from Greek culture and Greek myth. Peter's playing off of the idea of Tartarus. And in fact, the word that he uses there for Tartarus isn't the noun, it itself is a verb. The word that he uses means to cast into Tartarus. Now, what is Tartarus? What is the idea that Peter is picking up on here and communicating to us? Well, in Greek myth and Greek culture, Tartarus was a deep abyss. It was a place of gloom and darkness. It was like a prison. And in the Greek myth, the gods were at war with the Titans. And the Titans were a primeval, powerful, menacing force of wickedness. And the gods gained control over the Titans. And in the story... The gods cast the titans down into Tartarus. So that Tartarus becomes a place that even imprisons the titans. Even these godlike beings. And so the language that Peter is using here is that when God cast down Satan and God cast down the fallen angels who fell with him, God cast them into Tartarus. He cast them into a dark, gloomy abyss. 
Tartarus is described as a pit as low as heaven is high. It's a place of oppressive darkness and sorrow and gloom. It's a place of oppressive loneliness and rejection and alienation. It's a place of hopelessness and despair. It's a place of the torment of the body and the torment of the mind and of the soul. In the book of Jude, Jude describes Tartarus like this. Jude 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling... He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So we have to understand both Peter and Jude to mean that at the fall of the angels, some of them went immediately to this abyss. And although we see Satan somewhat active in the world, we are reminded of what the Bible teaches us about God's sovereignty. And there is no Satan and there's no work of Satan or work of demons that's not under his control. And of course, when Christ came, he secured an even greater binding of them. And when he comes again in his second coming, a consummated binding of them. But here it's revealed to us that there's a sense in which God has already cast them into this place of spiritual torment and gloom. And some of them were there, reserved for the day of judgment. This is why the demons were afraid when Christ was casting out demons in his lifetime. And they begged him not to throw them out of the country, which is to throw them into the abyss. They had seen it. It had already begun to occur. Tartarus. A place of eternal chains and gloomy darkness. Paul speaks about the torment of a place like Tartarus in Romans chapter 2, verse 8 through 9. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Paul uses those words to express to us the intensity of the punishment, the intensity of God's indignation against the wicked, the power, terror, and severity of the punishment Wrath and fury, verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and the Greek. This helps us to think about the kind of torment the angels must be in in Tartarus. Jesus speaks about the terror and severity of Tartarus, the alienation and the rejection of it. In those dreadful passages that you might remember, Matthew chapter 8, verse 11 through 12, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, that's the Jews, the unbelieving Pharisees, and those who follow them will be thrown into outer darkness. There's the contrast we have of those who are brought into the kingdom and those who are rejected Jesus calls it being thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says something very similar in Luke chapter 13, verse 28. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. It's a place of gloom, oppressive sense of alienation. Isaiah in the Old Testament, chapter 24, verse 14 through 17, paints a similar picture to this. 
He paints a picture there of all of the people, all of the, all of the elect angels and all the people of God in heaven singing God's praises. And then in verse 17, he turns our attention in the image that he's painting there. And we see a picture of a sinner. He's by himself. He's alone. He's far away. He's cast out. He can, he can hear the singing in the far, far, far distance. And this is how Isaiah records the words of this man's anguish. He cries out in Isaiah 24, verse 17, I waste away, I waste away, woe is me. The traitors have betrayed, the traitors have betrayed. This is a very powerful image of the gloom and the darkness and the alienation and the separation of this abyss that God has cast the angels down into. Peter is saying God has already done it. There are already those who were there. He did it to the fallen angels, and He'll do it to you unless you repent of your sins, unless you can receive some kind of mercy, because it's in God's justice that He deals with sinners this way. It's with justice that God deals with the fallen angels this way. If God treated the fallen angels like this, Peter's argument is, then he'll treat the false teachers this way. And God is already at work to make it happen. He's not idle about it. He'll be swift. And if God treats the false teachers this way, this is how he'll treat all of the ungodly. And so there's a call here today to repent and to fly to God your only hope and to beg Him for His mercy And to trust in Him because He promises in His Word. In fact, He commands in His Word. He commands all people everywhere to repent of their sins and to come to Him and find salvation and relief from this kind of punishment that's coming because of their sins. If you're here today, because of your sins, God commands you to turn from your sin and to trust in Him and to be saved from the abyss from the Tartarus that your sins have brought upon you. If God can cast you there, He can save you from there. And the message of the Gospel is to trust in Him and to believe in Him and to be saved. That's something the angels didn't have the privilege of. Because Christ didn't unite Himself to the flesh of the angels or the nature of the angels. And there is no covenant by which they can be saved. They're in that abyss And they're destined for that abyss and there's no hope of salvation. But in Christ's church, even for the false teachers, even for the false brothers, even for the worst criminals, there's hope because Christ is united to your nature. And He came to save sinners. Trust in Him. Put your faith in Him. That's the message of the Gospel. But here Peter's speaking about this wrath and this fury, this swift destruction that's going to come upon the false teachers. And now he moves quickly on from the fallen angels as just one example of how God's destruction and condemnation is an idol and not asleep. To speak of a second example of it in the antediluvian world, into the world before the flood. Verse 5. His second example, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Here's our second example. 
God has already brought swift destruction upon the ungodly. He did it in Genesis chapter 6. You remember the whole story of the flood. The thoughts and the intentions of man's heart were great. And the Lord purposed to destroy the world and to flood the world. But He promised to save Noah. He had grace and mercy upon Noah. So He preserved Noah and Noah's family. Seven people in all. Eight people in all. Seven family members. And with Noah, eight people in all. And He saved them and He preserved them and He brought them out of the flood that was coming upon the world of the ungodly. Well, it's important for us to see here that Peter's thought, again, it's blossoming, it's blooming as he goes. He's speaking about false teachers and God's condemnation upon them. And he's beginning to stretch his mind here to speak about not just the false teachers, but all the ungodly. And he's beginning to speak about the way that God preserves His people. So it's a wonderful passage for us. Again, the point is the same one that we just made. God's destruction is not idle. It's not asleep. It's swift. Jesus says that for the people of the flood, it was sudden and unexpected. There was eating and drinking and so on, giving in marriage. And they went on with their daily lives until the day that Noah entered in the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed the world. It destroyed all of those people. It was swift, Jesus says. There was a sense in which it was sudden and unexpected. And it was universal. There was no one exempt except for Noah whom God preserved. By His grace, it came upon the whole world. It came upon men. It came upon women. It came upon the children of that time. God's wrath felt heavy and strong, swift. If you remember from Genesis chapter 6, God gave the world 120 years. And that sounds like a long time to us, but how short that time seems in retrospect. How short that time seems in the light of an eternal abyss, eternal destruction. God was swift. He was not idle. He was at work. And we have this glorious message that He preserved Noah. And Noah is helpful for us here. Because Noah was a man who was saved by God's grace. We remember that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And there's a lot that we can say about Noah. But the point that I want to bring out to you this morning is that God saved him by His grace. There's hope for us when we think about Noah and we think about God's grace to Noah. Was Noah any different than the other people who were on the face of the world at that time? Fundamentally, was there any difference between him and any of the other men or women or children that God destroyed in the flood? No, he was just as depraved as all of them. The only thing that made Noah stand out or different or distinct from them is the grace and favor of God towards him and the power of God in his life to effect in him repentance so that he was a blameless man in his generation, the text tells us. And God was kind and he was gracious to Noah. And the same message is here for us today. If God will show you grace, if he'll show you mercy, you can be saved from the coming destruction. And that puts a responsibility upon you to come to the Lord and to ask Him for mercy. And to ask Him to save you. And He promises in His Word that if you do, He will answer that prayer because He is a good God. He is gracious and He is compassion. Yes, He is just against sin, but He can forgive sin and He can rule over your sin and He can break the power and the dominion of your sin by His mercy and by His grace. And He offers that mercy and grace to you today freely. He promises it to you. In fact, He commands you to come and get it. 
He's warning you so that you might hear the commandment. There is a destruction coming because of your sins. And God commands you to repent and to believe the gospel. And so Noah was preserved and Noah was a herald of righteousness. So it's not that the world of that time was not warned. They were warned. But they rejected the warning. Every single one of those people in the world at that time had the opportunity to repent and to believe and to be saved. Why didn't they take it, you might ask? Because they didn't heed the warning. Because they were apathetic. Because they were presumptuous upon God's grace. Because they thought that they could hide from God. There's a multiple list of answers that we could give here. The very same kinds of sins that you may be struggling with this morning. Thinking, this message is crazy. And you, become, you just want to ignore it. Or thinking it's something that you can put off. Or something that you don't really need to hear because God is gracious and kind to everyone, isn't He? And I'll be okay. And the Lord may threaten this punishment upon the old world and upon the fallen angels, but not upon me. That's the way we think. We think we can hide from God. And the Lord calls you to repentance this morning. God is a zealous God. He's a jealous God. And your apathy is a sin in His sight. Your spiritual laziness and carelessness is a sin in his sight. But he calls on you to repent and to bring and to come to him and to ask him for mercy and forgiveness. And he promises that he'll extend that to you. So Peter gives us these two examples. The first is the fallen angels, swift destruction. The antediluvian world, the time of the flood, swift destruction. God didn't wait <laughs> He was not idle. He was swift. He saw. But then he gives us a third example, and the third example are the Sodomites, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Look with me at verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction. Now, the ESV uses that language of being condemned to extinction to communicate this devastating destruction, the finality of it, the completeness of it, the thoroughness of it. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in his condemnation to extinction. He obliterated them. It was a fierce wrath. The King James Version Translates this word as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, it's a picture like we saw with the fallen angels. The idea is is that although sulfur rained from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah, all that was left in the end was an ash heap. All that was left was dust. And so the, the idea that Peter's communicating here, it was like God picked up those cities and threw them down with such rage and such power and such fierceness that they turned to dust. There was nothing left. He turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes. He condemned them. He overthrew them, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Again, the language here is very vivid. It's very strong. The focus is on ashes. The picture is of fire. We think in the New Testament of a lake of fire. We think of Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, 
If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What a horrific image that is, isn't it? A lake of fire? That's the kind of image that keeps me up at night. Seriously, it's scary. It's scary. Can you think of anything worse? Can you, can you even begin to imagine what it must be like to be in a lake of fire, to swim in a lake of fire forever and ever with no hope of escape? The kind of pain that that must be. And there's some people who come to that passage and they think that it's metaphorical. Which is to say that the best description that we can come up with in this life is a lake of fire. Which is to say that the torments of hell must be even worse than what we can imagine being in a lake of fire. The torments of body, the torments of soul, the torments of mind. This is the destiny that God is warning sinners about because of your sin. This is the punishment that your sins deserve. Just like the Sodomites. Just like the people of Gomorrah. It's an example, Peter says, to what God is going to do to all of the ungodly. Not just the false teachers. And today is the day of warning. Today is the day of repentance for you. To flee to the Lord God. And to ask for mercy. And to turn from your sins. And to receive the forgiveness that He freely offers through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And to be saved. But notice how this unfolds in Peter's mind. In verse 7, he now turns his attention to Lot. God rescued righteous Lot. (laughs) Again, we see Peter's mind blossoming here. We see him branching off. He has an idea about God's condemnation being swift to the false teachers, but his mind is moved into the preservation of the righteous. Look at verse 7. If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. And brothers, let me just pause there and say, is it not distressing to us? Remaining sin in our own hearts, remaining sin in the world around us. Does it not cause us to grieve? Does it not cause us to long and to hope for the world to come and the final coming of Jesus Christ when He will come to judge this world and to purge the sin that remains in us and the sin that remains in this world and to cast out the evildoers and to throw them into that abyss so that they will never again disturb the peace or the faith or the hope or the love of God's people? And Jesus will usher in an age of righteousness. We long for that day. Well, so did Lot. He was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Verse 8, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now what Peter's doing there is he's bringing out something very interesting about Lot. And I want to spend just a few minutes talking about Lot because brothers and sisters, you and I, we are Lot. And Lot is a mixed bag. He is a walking contradiction. (laughs) On the one hand, he's righteous. And why is Lot righteous? Because he believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. Just like it is for you and I if we're in Christ Jesus. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are counted righteous. We are clothed with Christ's righteousness. This was Lot. You remember in the Old Testament, he went out with Abraham. He believed the promise. He went with Abraham. And so Lot is called a righteous man. And he was a regenerate man. He had a new life in him that God had granted him and granting him the gift of faith. 
and being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and he wanted to live a holy life, and he had learned to hate sin, and he was distressed by the sensual conduct that was going on all around him. And so he was a righteous man. And yet, look at where Lot is in the text. (laughs) He was living among them day after day. And we don't have time to go back to Genesis and read the story of Lot, but it's because Lot put himself in that position because of his foolish decisions. Because he was a foolish man. He was a righteous man and he was a holy man. But he's a walking contradiction. He's like us. He was spiritually undiscerning. He was spiritually lazy. And you can see this in the narrative. If we were to go back to Genesis chapter 13, when him and Abraham had to part ways, and how Lot chose the way that he would go. He, he saw Sodom and Gomorrah in the distance, and he, and, and he judged it by how lush the land was and how beautiful it was, and how it seemed like a really nice place to live. <laughs> and he goes after Sodom and Gomorrah. And he knows the reputation of the people there, but he goes anyway. Because he's a spiritual fool in some way. And then we get to Genesis chapter 19 where God sends the angels to warn Lot of the coming destruction. And we see some things in the text. If we were to go back to Genesis 19, Lot was a man who had a position in Sodom and Gomorrah. It says that he was sitting at the gates, which in the Old Testament means that he had influence in the city. His roots were deep there. The people knew him. And I think this is why Peter says in verse 8 that he tormented his righteous soul. He wasn't just simply tormented. He had put himself in a position in which he was being tormented. He was living in Sodom and Gomorrah. You think to yourself, Lot, why didn't you get out of Sodom? Why did it take two angels to come to warn you to come out of the city? What are you doing there, Lot, is the question we ask if we could go back to Genesis 19 and read the narrative. And we begin to see how much like Lot we are. How undiscerning we are. How foolish our decisions can be. Genesis chapter 19. As it unfolds, we begin to see something else about Lot's character. And it's that he is lazy. He's apathetic. In fact, I want, to, I want you to see this. Turn with me to Genesis 19. Look with me at verse 15. And maybe you're familiar with this story. Maybe you're not. But the wickedness of Sodom was very great. And the angels had come to warn Lot that they were going to destroy the city. And they tell him to go warn his family and to warn his sons-in-law. And he goes to warn his family, goes to warn his sons-in-law. And it seems to them like Lot is joking about this, that he can't possibly be serious. But then we read in verse 15, as morning dawned, I'm just going to pause right there because in the flow of the narrative, we haven't read the context. The whole point here is that Lot has had all night to get out of the city. (laughs) Why is Lot still in Sodom is the question that we are asking at this point in the narrative. And but notice this as the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying up. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. You see the urgency with which they're speaking to Lot. They've been speaking this way all night long. You've got to get out, Lot. You've got to go. (laughs) 
But look at verse 16. But he lingered. He waited. He hesitated. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. They took him by the hand. The Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. (laughs) And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Very urgent here, seeking to save Lot's life. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords. Listen to this. Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest a disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is a near one. It's near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one, and my life will be saved? I mean, the reason the text is sort of drawn out there is because it's showing us that even with the urgency, even with them dragging him out of the city, he's still lingering. Lot does not take the promise of the coming of God's judgment very seriously, does he? It has no effect on him. It doesn't move him. (laughs) He's like a dead rock. And in verse 21, he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Very kind, isn't it, of God to do that for Lot. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Again, God's mercy. See God's commitment and faithfulness even to Lot. Even to weak, apathetic, lazy Lot. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means little. Verse 23, the sun had risen on earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. Total destruction. But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now certainly as we read that, we remember the the warning that Christ gives us. Remember Lot's wife. And we remember how in her heart she had not yet turned away from Sodom and Gomorrah. And so she hesitated. But the other thing to notice here in the narrative is that Lot's escape was so narrow (laughs) that his wife, who is standing behind him, if she hesitated for a moment, was taken up in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And she herself was turned into a pillar of salt. The idea being she turned to ash and she was vaporized and God's judgment. And we see God's mercy upon Lot, and we see his wrath upon the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah and those whose hearts were still there. But it's a very powerful message to us then. Peter's making the point that we are, as Christians, this is part of what Peter's point is, is when it comes to false teachers and when it comes to the warning of their reality and when it comes to the seriousness of this whole issue, of sound doctrine and being discerning and taking seriously the warnings, especially taking seriously the warnings of God's judgment, the doctrine of the coming judgment of God. We are just like Lot. We tend to be lazy. We tend to be apathetic. Our Father is full of zeal and we have none. 
You can see the way that, that you can see this play itself out in a Christian's life in the world that we live in today. In the way that Christians tend to choose their churches. They make a choice of their church like Lot made the choice of where he was going to live in the valley. And they don't consider doctrine. And they don't consider teaching and sound teaching to be number one on their list. They put instead things like fun or the hymns that are sung or how the pastors make them feel or a host of other issues. And I want you to see the story of Lot and I want you to be warned and Peter wants us to see the story of Lot and to be warned. This is an apathetic way to approach the Christian life. Truth is essential. It's absolute priority to our Christian life and to our Christian growth. Lot tormented himself by the decision that he made. And he lost his wife to the deceptions of that place that he went. Let us repent. And let us turn from our laziness. Let us not be like Lot However, let us be encouraged by this message that God preserved Lot even through all of Lot's weaknesses and even through Lot's failures and sins. God loved Lot and God rescued Lot even though Lot lingered and Lot was a little lazy. But then the application to us, brothers and sisters, is to love the Lord our God with the same intensity and zeal that he's loved us. At least to seek to. Your God is on fire for you if you're in Christ Jesus because of Christ Jesus. He's devoted to you. He's committed to you. He's faithful to you. With zeal, He pursues you. With zeal, He has brought home to you the the graces of salvation. He has clung to you. He keeps you. He preserves you. Therefore, cling to Him. He is your God. He is your praise. He is your light. He is your life. Hold fast to Him. And so in verse 9 and 10, Peter drives home the point that he's been making here, especially about God's love. Look at verse 9. Then, if all of these things are true, if this is how God handles the angels, and this is how God handles the world before the flood, and this is how God treated Sodom and Gomorrah, and this is how he treated Noah, and this is how he treated Lot, then here's the conclusion we can come to, Peter says, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He knows how to preserve you. He knows how to keep you. He knows how to protect you. And God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion at sexual immorality and who despise authority. We can take that mainly to be theological authority. The theological point then underlying this text is God's fierce love in protecting His people. The Lord knows how to rescue you. He knows how to keep you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be very encouraged and trust in Him and hold fast to Him and love Him and seek Him just as He has sought you, and seek to obey Him, just as He seeks you. And if you're here today and you're outside of Christ, the Lord knows how to swiftly destroy sinners. That's the message. Look at the angels. Look at the world before the flood. Look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at what God did. Look at how fiercely He did it. Look at the abyss. That's your destiny if you're outside of Jesus Christ. 
Look at the flood that swept them away. That's your destiny outside of Jesus Christ. Look at the eternal fire of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's your destiny if you're outside of Jesus Christ. Your destruction, if you're outside of Jesus Christ, is not idle. And it's not asleep. The Lord sees you. He knows you. He sees your heart. He sees your soul. He sees your mind. He knows the things that you have done. And He's at work to bring your destruction upon you. Your condemnation is not idle. It is not asleep. The pieces of your life are like pieces on a chessboard. And the final and devastating checkmate is coming quickly. The sovereign Lord knows how to keep the wicked under punishment until the day of judgment. But here's the promise of the Scriptures. Here's the promise of the Gospel. This is the message that we preach as a church. This is the message of Christianity. If you're outside of Christ, the sovereign Lord commands you to repent of your sin and to believe in Him and to be saved. He calls on you today to flee from the wrath to come and to find mercy in Jesus Christ. He promises that if you turn from your sin, that's not a, that's not a requirement for perfection, but if you turn from your sin and you turn to Him for salvation, He will hear your plea and He will receive you and He will grant you in Christ the forgiveness of your sins the removal of condemnation and punishment, and He will accept you as a son or a daughter, and He will be your God, and you will be His true son or daughter. That's God's promise to you today, and He commands you to take it. (laughs) He commands you to receive it. He doesn't just invite you to receive it. He commands you to take it and to receive it. I invite you, the whole church here, every believer in this room says, come, we plead with you, come and receive salvation. But the Lord God of heaven and earth commands you to come. And so come and be saved.